Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to Left of Straight Show, guys. We made it to Thursday. It is Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. Hope you're all having a fantastic day. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. Some of you might have a three-day weekend ahead. Some people are closed tomorrow for the 4th of July weekend. So if you are, have a fantastic three-day weekend Those of you that can go out, of course, COVID has things shutting everything down like crazy. They canceled our regular fireworks display here in Northeast Ohio, where I am at. So uh, a couple of them. I mean, usually we're a big fireworks town. We have a Phantom Fireworks uh, corporate headquarters is here in Youngstown. And so we have lots of Phantom Fireworks all over everywhere here. And they are banning the fireworks this year because they don't want people to gather because of COVID going. So that's Not as fun. We'll see what happens, though. Uh, If you missed last night's show, we had a great one for you. We started off with our regular Wednesday Pop Culture Minute with our buddies uh, Jeff and Josh from J&J Buzz. They had a couple great stories to share with us last night. And then my first interview was live with Tim Zintik. He created this great web series called The First about two guys that meet and all of their first together in their relationship. Really good uh, video series. He works at, as a writer in Hollywood, such shows as Fuller House and Roseanne, the new the Connors, I guess, not Roseanne anymore. So that was a great interview. And then my second interview was with Dr. Steve Iacovelli. He's known as the Gay Leadership Dude, and he is uh, great at business. He kind of talks about how we can use some of the skills we've had to develop being in the LGBT community into leadership skills. And a very interesting talk with him. So great time with both of them. So if you missed last night's show, go ahead and check it out at your favorite podcast distributor. We're on iTunes and iHeartRadio, Spotify and Google Podcasts and Stitcher and all those fun things. And while you're at it, If you're there, go ahead and click the little subscribe button and you'll get a little notification whenever we have an episode. You can decide to listen to it or not. If you do listen to it, please do me a favor. Give us a little five-star rating there. The better ratings we have, the more people find the show. They put it in the search rankings a little bit higher, and I would really appreciate that. So, yeah, check out last night's show if you missed it. Tonight, we have a great show for you. We're going to start off in just a couple of seconds here with Ramis Ellis. She is our 
foodie expert, special correspondent. We're going to have a Thursday foodie minute with Bermise. She's got two amazing recipes for you guys tonight. And uh, that's going to be kind of fun. Then I have two live interviews for you. We're going to start off with Greg Baird in just a little bit. He is a great motivational speaker and writer and lecturer all about LGBTQ issues. We're going to talk about that with him. And he also has concocted his own spice company. So, you know, I'm a big foodie. So we're going to keep the foodie going with him and talk about his spices. And then finally, tonight we're going to wrap it up with a great interview with Matt Ballas. He is a psychologist and comedian, and he's combined the two, written a book, and talks about getting a natural high and tries to get people off substance abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, and talks about how you can find those kind of highs naturally. So two great live interviews coming up in just a little bit, and we're going to have Ramisa's Thursday foodie minute in just a couple of seconds do have to announce i did say it last night the big gay road trip unfortunately has been canceled i hate to say that i was really looking forward to it we're not going to go to palm springs this sunday as planned i had my car almost packed but uh la and riverside county are not doing good with covid people are not wearing their masks they're not social distancing Riverside County has a 99% occupancy rate in their hospitals. Yesterday on Wednesday, they closed all the bars and all of the indoor eating establishments in the city. And that's a big fun thing to do in Palm Springs. That's a great foodie city. And so who knows what's going to be next. There's going to be the gyms and the resorts and everything like that. So I didn't want to chance any of my guest health for driving in from LA and Orange County. I didn't want to challenge my health because, remember, I have to come back in six weeks to my 81-year-old mother and make sure she does not get sick with her diabetes and everything. So it was just better all the way around to postpone the trip. We will try to do it later this year. Unfortunately, that is the busiest time for the resort, and I want them to be busy since they've had to close all this time. So maybe next summer, but if we can get out there earlier, we will. So keep you updated on that this show on the road shall we i'm looking forward to it uh tonight we have our intern justine running the boards tonight in the control room so i'm going to send it over to her and we're going to play a little bit of remise get your uh, pencils and pens ready everybody she's got two great recipes for you on our thursday foodie minute I'll be back on the other side and we're going to talk with greg baird you're listening to left of straight show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. Take it away, Ramiz. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Left of Straight. My name is Ramiz, and I think it's about time we talk a little bit about food. Living in New York City the last couple of months during quarantine has been anything but exciting, right? But luckily for some of us, we were able to complete some of those projects that we've put off for a little while and then also get into some brand new hobbies that we never really thought we'd find interesting. Now, between putting up some new shelves, some blinds, buying some new plants for our home and decorating the apartment, I've also found myself getting really involved into cooking. I absolutely love being in the kitchen. So for me, this isn't necessarily new, but as far as consistency came about, being in quarantine definitely helped with that. After our initial purchase through our grocery delivery service, we kind of started making it a priority where we would look at recipes before going on this weird shopping spree, therefore forcing us to uh, try some different things, and especially for me, to just get a little bit more familiar around the kitchen. So today, I figured I'd share with you all a couple of uh, different things that I made and a few of my favorite things, as a matter of fact, and maybe you all will want to try them as well. 
if you do decide to make any of the things that I mentioned, please let me know. I would love to hear about the process and how it went for you and, you know, the way you feel like it came out. But we will not waste any more time, so let's get right into it. Now, this first one I'm going to talk about is an oldie, but a favorite. And this is something I've made a couple different times. Uh, my girlfriend really likes it. I think it comes out pretty good. And I'm just going to give you guys a basic rundown of what I do when I make it. And uh, yeah, here we go. So the first recipe that I have that I want to share with you all would be stuffed bell peppers. Um, like I said, this is an oldie, but a favorite. And I've made this a couple times, and I'm really excited to share this with you all. As far as ingredients, you're going to definitely need um, anywhere between four and six bell peppers. So again, it depends on your intake. Uh, we usually get like four because then we'll have like one for dinner and then maybe have one the next day or something like that. Um, but yeah, anywhere between four and six bell peppers would be fine. You're going to definitely need some grounded meat. Um, sometimes we use ground turkey, sometimes we use ground beef. So it really just depends on the person, but definitely some ground meat would be good. The next thing I want to make sure that I have um, is minced garlic, some chopped up onions, then you're going to need some type of tomato sauce. I prefer to use pasta sauce um, just because it had a little, has a little bit of extra flavor to it, but that's just my preference. Uh, but you can definitely use some regular tomato sauce. Then the next thing that the recipe calls for is Italian seasoning. I do not have Italian seasoning. If you do, that is fantastic and definitely use it. If you don't, I think you can get away with a couple other different things that will just kind of add to that flavor a little bit. So I do um, add a little bit of powdered onion, powdered garlic, uh, salt and pepper. I'll throw a little oregano in it, and that's pretty much it. Um, I find that to be the basics of what you might need, so you don't need to go uh, too crazy. And then last but not least, you're going to need some olive oil, and then definitely some cheese, some cheddar cheese to be more specific, but some cheese that you can put um, either in the meat when you're cooking it or on top. That would be ideal. One more thing you can add to the recipe if you uh, happen to have this at home would be some breadcrumbs. I like to add this on top when I put extra cheese. <laughs> um, I try to add it on top just to give it a little bit more crunch. But yeah, that's just a little extra something. All right, the first step you're going to want to take is preheating your oven to 350 degrees. During this time while that oven is getting warm, you can go ahead and start cleaning off those peppers. I prefer to just run it under uh, pretty warm water and use my hands to really rub down the sides to make sure I get, you know, whatever extra crap off. <laughs> um, but yeah, just definitely make sure you're giving it a solid clean. Um, after you're done cleaning off your peppers, you're going to set them down and you're going to start cutting off the tops. So basically like the way you would carve, like if you're going to do like a carved pumpkin, how you would take the top off and then remove the insides. This is literally what you're going to do with these peppers, okay? So you're going to make a nice circle around the top of them, removing that top stem and just kind of clearing out the inside. So make sure you take out any extra seeds, uh, trim the bottom if you need to. And all that's going to do is it's going to help it sit flat in the pan, okay? That's another thing. If you have a cast iron skillet, this is the perfect time to whip that baby out. If you don't, that is totally fine. Uh, you can put it in a Pyrex dish. I like to line it with foil paper just to help it stay a little bit more stable and help with the cleaning process. But you can definitely put it in anything that is oven safe. You just want to make sure that the peppers are nice and stable. But back to the peppers. Um, after you give them a nice good clean and you clear out the insides, you're going to then make sure that you sit them down in whatever pan you're going to use and you're going to start working on that meat. For the next step, you're going to take the large skillet. You're going to add the olive oil. You're going to then... Um, Grab as, you know, whatever garlic you feel is necessary. Obviously, some people like a lot, <laughs> so it's really up to the person, I think. But you're going to get that minced garlic, and you're going to also take your chopped up onions, and you're going to add that to the olive oil, and you're going to kind of cook it until it's tender. All that means is you're just going to saute it to the point that the onions become a little bit more translucent, a little softer, and the garlic also starts to break down as well. Once you get there, you're going to start adding in your grounded meat, and you're going to break that bad boy up and cook it until it is nice and dark. We don't want to see any pink. 
Uh, make sure that you get it nice and brown before you do anything else. After you've got it nice and broken up and you've gotten that really dark brown color to it, you're going to then start adding uh, your crushed tomatoes, a.k.a. your pasta sauce, a.k.a. your tomato sauce, whatever it is that you're putting in there. You want to add that. You want to throw in your Italian seasoning or the seasoning breakdown that I gave you, which, again, was the um, powdered onion, powdered garlic, oregano, salt, and pepper. And for some, this is when you can start putting in the little bit of cheddar cheese that I mentioned before, okay? After you get all this in there, you're going to start working it in there, start mixing it up, allow the meat to really absorb everything and really get cooking, right? Once you have everything nicely blended, you're going to go ahead and turn off that pot, and you're going to start filling up your peppers with this meat concoction. <laughs> I feel like saying concoction is, like, not cool, but this mixture. <laughs> Once you have all this added into your peppers, you can go ahead and make sure that you fill them up pretty good. You don't want to overdo it, but again, to each of their own. Um, you want to fill them up pretty good. And then after you've gotten these peppers nice and full, you want to then add a little bit more cheese. And again, depending on the person, you may want to add some of those breadcrumbs on top. So again, make sure that you're using a pan that is safe for the oven and you have it lined with some, um, some foil paper just to, again, help with that cleaning process. And you may even get some extra meat, cheese mixture that falls into that uh, foil and you can just scoop it up and put it right on top of the pepper that you're eating just to add a little bit more extra something. Um, after you're done, you're going to stick that in the oven uncovered for about 25 to 30 minutes just to make sure that it stays nice and warm and it's cooking all the way through the peppers. And after checking it a few times through the that 25 to 30 minute window, once you feel like everything looks pretty good, you can take that out and serve. Obviously, be careful if it's really hot, but the point that I'm trying to make is you don't need to do anything else after that. <laughs> you can take it out of the oven, place it down on a um, safe surface for really hot things, and uh, yeah, take your time and eat it up. And the next thing I'm going to break down that I made was some garlic butter shrimp pasta. I know it sounds pretty fancy, but it's really not that bad. Here's how you make it. You're going to need enough pasta to serve for anywhere between three and four people. Uh, this recipe calls for four, and it calls for one pound of linguine slash spaghetti, but again, it's really up to you. You're going to need some salt, um, about a pound of shrimp. I would definitely say raw or uncooked. You're going to need some extra virgin olive oil, uh, some cherry tomatoes. I don't like to have too much tomato in my food, so I put it in first just so that it breaks down and adds a little bit more to the flavor. You're going to grab yourself some minced garlic. You're going to need about uh, anywhere between three, four to six tablespoons of butter. And again, this all depends on the person. If you like a lot of butter, then you go for those six tablespoons. If you're trying to cut back a little bit, then anywhere between three and four is safe. Definitely going to need some Parmesan cheese. Um, and then to top it all off, you're going to need some parsley, just a little bit, either parsley or basil. Either one is fine. And if you like spice, I would suggest definitely getting some crushed red chili pepper. So similar to the stuff that you might find at a pizzeria um, next to like the Parmesan cheese and stuff, that red flaky stuff, you might want to get some of that. Now that we've got all our ingredients, let's start cooking. First things first, you're going to need a large pot and you're going to fill it up with some water, add a little salt, get that bad boy boiling, and let's start cooking our pasta. Once that pasta has been in there for a little while, you're going to take a little bit of that water out, okay? So only about a half a cup, and you're going to save it to the side. So again, you're going to take about a half a cup of pasta water, put it to the side. While your pasta continues to cook, you're going to take your shrimp, and of course we want to make sure that it's not frozen, completely defrosted, and you're just going to kind of pat down, okay? Pat them down with a paper towel, making sure that they're a little bit more dry. You don't want to have really wet, you know, soppy shrimp going into this oil when you cook it. Now, after you've gotten your shrimp nice and dry, you're going to take a little bit of salt and you're going to cover um, all of your shrimp with the salt on both sides. You're not going to add too much, just a little bit, but you want to make sure that you get that salt close, uh, excuse me, coated on both sides of the shrimp. After you've added your desired amount of salt, 
you're going to go ahead and get a nice large skillet, about 12 inches, and you're going to turn the fire up to about medium heat. Now you can go ahead and add your olive oil. You don't want to add too much, maybe about two tablespoons, just so you can kind of see it shimmer at the bottom. You don't need to go too crazy. Now, after you've gotten your oil in the pan, you're going to give it about a moment or so just to make sure that the oil gets a little bit warm and it starts to shimmer a little bit. After that, you can start adding your shrimp in one layers. All that means is just don't pile them up like you would throw like a bunch on top of each other. You just want to make sure that they're nice and evenly flat against the pan. You're going to let those shrimp cook for about two minutes. And after you feel like they've gotten a nice and pink on that one side, you're going to turn them over and allow them to get pink all the way through. You don't want to have any more grayish uh, clear shrimp at this point. Once you feel like your shrimp has reached a good point in its cooking process, you're going to then start adding uh, your cherry tomatoes. You definitely want to make sure that you cut them in half before adding them. I forgot to say that before. <laughs> but you want to take these cherry tomatoes, cut them in half, and then add them to your shrimp. So as you're going along, you're going to cut one, put it in, cut one, and put it in if you've already reached a point of no return. <laughs> um, after you've added your tomatoes, you're going to start adding um, the minced garlic, the uh, tablespoons of butter that you have, and also that chili to the pan with the shrimp, and you're going to start stirring everything together. Once that butter is nice and melted, you're going to then add about two to three tablespoons of that reserved pasta water that we had put to the side, and you're going to start to swirl it into the pasta. That's going to get it slowly uh, thickened up, and then after time goes by, if you feel like it's not thick enough and you want it to be you know, a little bit more, you're going to add a little bit more water little bit by little bit by little bit. You don't want to add too much because then if you're unhappy with it, then that stinks. So you want to do it little bit by little bit. Once you feel like you've gotten your desired thickness with the sauce, you're going to then take that cooked pasta that you have sitting on the side and you're going to add it into your pan that has the shrimp and the sauce and everything combined. And you're going to do a nice little mix up with all of your food so that it becomes one beautiful, you know, flowing pasta with shrimp and all these colors and it just looks and tastes awesome. And last but not least, you're going to take your parsley and you're going to take your Parmesan cheese and you're going to take your basil and you're going to add them to the top and you're going to make it look nice and pretty. You're going to take a photo and you're going to share with all of your friends and it's going to be great. Let me know if any of you all decide to try any of these recipes. Tag me in it. My Instagram name is at FeedRemise. That is F-E-E-D-R-E-M-E-I-C-E. And let me know how it comes out. I hope you all enjoyed the two recipes that I shared and I can't wait to talk to you all again in a couple weeks. Stay safe and take care. Well, thanks, Ramis. That was wonderful. I'm not even a seafood person, but I like me a little fettuccine Alfredo. That is for darn sure. The shrimp is just a bonus for you seafood lovers out there. All right, guys, well, let's get right to it. My next guest is a, nat- a national lecturer, writer, and activist, also a novice filmmaker with a background in theater. He's spoken to schools, corporations, and community groups about the importance of equality and civil rights for all. He even spoke with Emmy-winning actress Sharon Glass of Cagney and Lacey and Queer's Folk fame about building a bridge of unity at the International Lesbian and Gay Police Association Gay Officers Action League Conference in Chicago, Illinois. Is that timely or what? As we move on from Pride Month, I think we always need to be speaking on such topics as equal rights, bullying, mentorship, diversity, hate crimes, acceptance, and the future movement of the LGBT community. And so I'm so excited to have someone who's adept at speaking to all of that. So please welcome to the show for the very first time, Mr. Greg Baird. Greg, how you doing, buddy? Good. Thanks, Scott. Great intro. 
Well, thank you so much for being on. You've done some great accomplishments, my friend. I appreciate you taking the time to call in. How's everything in beautiful downtown Chicago land this lovely evening? Things are a little uh, humid and hot, and uh, <laughs> I, 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 I'm a, a very appreciative of my air conditioning unit in my living room at the moment. <laughs> there you go. I can understand that very well. And how has your 2020 been so far, Mr. Lecture Travel All About? Uh, are you doing okay? Well, How's that, everything holding up on your end? That is uh, the $6 million question. So um, during the 20, well, it'd be uh, ni- the 2019-2020 school year, usually my fall up until, <clears throat> excuse me, like uh, Thanksgiving, I get a little break, um, and then into the new year, um, I have quite a few gigs. And April is uh, usually a big month for me because a lot of the uh, colleges and universities I, I speak to are doing a lot of pride events in April, right. first part of May. And then I do some queer um, uh, lavender graduation. So uh, when COVID hit in February, I knew things were not going to be good. So I know my agency. Uh, Bastille Entertainment were scrambling with the other artists along with myself. So my entire lecture tour was decimated by COVID um, mm. for the spring. So um, it really put things, uh, a lot of things in perspective for me. And also um, I had to look at, at down the road, what did that mean? And also sure. how that affected the LGBTQ students. So my programs are now virtual. Uh, three of them are. I came up with two new ones, uh, along with my regular one that I do, and um, you know, and and one of those programs is just reaching out to um, LGBTQ students because a lot of them were, you know, shuffled around and sent home, and some didn't have homes to go to, and they lost their sense of community and things like that. So it was, uh, it's been a, a rough spring. Um, and then into summer, you know, I did some uh, some virtual pride events. Um, so I'm kind of looking to see what's going to happen this fall. But I have an idea. Um, you know, the schools don't even know now. But um, I think a lot of things will be virtual. So I uh, had to have right. a, a good crash course on Zoom. <laughs> I bet. I bet. We'll talk about all that because I, uh, I was curious about that. But let's start with a little background since it's your first time on the show. Where did sure. you grow up and what kind of a kid were you? Um, I grew up in Emily City, Michigan, which is in all the Michiganers hold their hand up, you know, like it's a a mitt. So um, I was in the thumb area. Actually, my little town of 2000 was called the Gateway to the Thumb. How interesting. Um, So um, (laughs) I was a creative kid, kind of interesting. My parents were unable to conceive children of their own, so they adopted two boys. Uh, I have an older brother. He's two and a half years older. I am 59. Uh, and, and Doug lives in Orlando. And um, we're both adopted from, it's very interesting. This is usually a showstopper during my program, but my brother and I are both adopted. We're both adopted from different families and we're both gay. So that is a little different. Uh, okay. And it's very different. <laughs> uh, we, we were in the, uh, Kind of a religious family, um, very prejudiced family where um, people of color 
and of different uh, ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds for not smoking up lightly. And especially, um, we didn't call it the LGBTQ back then, but the gay community was not good. So I didn't know what or who I was, you know, growing up. And, you know, it was uh, just an interesting life. But I was a creative kid. Uh, did some magic and clowning when I was younger. Um, and um, kind of theatrical kid. I wasn't a sports kid. And um, I think that probably bothered my father a lot. But uh, there wasn't a, a theater program or anything of the sort in my town. So I guess like, doing the magic and the clowning thing was my way of creating that. And I was a big fan of like Charlie Chaplin and um, all those kinds of things. So, yeah, I I always kind of walked to the beat of my own drummer. Gotcha. We'll talk about the LGBT experience. When did you first come out to yourself and when did you finally first kind of find your LGBTQ tribe? That's interesting. Uh, Well, um, I really didn't know what was going on with me and I probably, and it's like this with a lot of, uh, students that are going to school, their college for the first time. It's their first time away from home in a community, and that's when they find their sense of community. So when I went to college, it was, um, you know, I saw signs up for, uh, I went to school at Central Michigan University, right in the middle of Michigan in Mount Pleasant, and they had a, a, gotcha. a group called GLASS. And GLASS was an acronym, I still remember this, it was Gay Lesbian Association for Student Support. And um, I was well known in my in my dorm area, and I was president of the quad. And um, I would sneak out for those meetings. Um, and you know, you feel a lot of shame. Um, I, I was a chubby kid growing up and overweight going on, and I didn't know my place in the world being an overweight kid, and um, also being gay. I mean, and you know, my parents finding out. Uh, they always kind of threatened when we were younger that uh, being adopted, that if we did something wrong, they would ship us back. So that theme went on to when I came out. Um, I came out to my parents when I was, oh gosh, right around 30 and uh, to myself probably in the mid-20s and stuff when I was in college. So um, it was just a whole different arena with my parents who weren't uh, accepting. And uh, my mom was kind of a bully. And... um, parents divorce. So, you know, you mix all that stuff in between your your extended family, you find your chosen family, your extended family at college. So uh it wasn't right. until I left college that I came out and that's when I um got a secondary ed degree later on in life and uh had to stay with my mom for a few months while a student taught and that's that's when I came out. And it wasn't by a, a chosen deal, it was kind of like a discovery <laughs> for my mother. So Gotcha. Oh my goodness. That has a story in and of itself, I'm sure. Oh, well, let's yeah, talk I could talk about... your ear off. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I could talk your ear off about that. that that's a whole other program. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, I want to jump into your career a little bit and talk about some of the things to speak about. We did agree off air that we're going to go ahead, and I don't do it often, but we're going to let callers call in if they're interested. And you want to talk about something that Greg and I are talking about. If you have a question, maybe give us a call. The phone line to call is 347-989-0126. Again, 347-989-0126. If you want to talk to Greg or I, we'll keep the phone lines open here for about a half hour. So 
Call in if you wish. We're going to have, uh, like I said, we have Justine in the control room there. She'll go ahead and take your call and get you on the air with us. So super duper. Let's jump into this. What uh, Did you immediately think you were going to be a speaker, or what was your foray into speaking? Well, I went to school for secondary education, so I thought I'd be like, I guess you can relate it to, I thought I'd be the next Mr. Schuster. You know, I'd be the whole theater, <laughs> right? glee kind of thing in school. And um, I I wasn't uh, fully out. I never thought there would be any kind of, of uh, work speaking. I never even thought about it. But uh, I worked at Interlock and Center for the Arts in Interlock, Michigan, um, in the mid-90s. And it was an arts academy. I was there for two years. It was very trying. But good. Uh, I have a lot of students that have gone on to very successful things uh, professionally uh, in the entertainment business, and they did not have like a gay straight alliance. Uh, and I thought it was really important because I saw some students in my dormitory that were in need of that. They needed support. Well, mind you, my job then I was the male dorm director for the junior and senior high school boys. And I was out. Um, and when I approached the academy, they weren't the most open-minded, which I was surprised about having somebody start a gay straight alliance. So they agreed to do it as long. There was a straight female that was involved with it, who was in the counseling department, but it was a catch 22. Okay. If there was ever an event we went to in Traverse city, Michigan, or anything that was LGBTQ oriented, um, the students had to get a written permission from their parents. Well, there was only very few that got that written permission because of the fact that they weren't out to their parents. Um, right. But I really fought tooth and nail for that. Uh, I, at one point, I got interrogated by the administration, um, two people, and one eventually came out a few years later. And I kind of look back at that in retrospect, and I, I always thought uh, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been um, a little bit rough for them because I, I really felt they overstepped their bounds and asked me a lot of personal questions. Um, so from there, I just felt very empowered, and then um, I, I was a big summer camping guy, so I used to teach performing arts in the Berkshires. And I started off doing that in Petoskey. But um, 1996, I took a job at North Central Michigan College, and I was the director of residence life and student activities and the adjunct theater and acting professor. Like, I didn't have enough to do, but I also was the director <laughs> of the lecture series. And the lecture series gave me uh, a huge open door. And I, I, I'm looking at my wall because I have the posters up on my wall, and they're all signed. It was a really incredible time, and I and I brought a diverse amount of people into Petoskey, Michigan, in northern Michigan, to the campus. Uh, people that came were not charged, so it gave people an opportunity of voice, and they had been very conservative prior to that with a lot of their offerings, and I really switched it up. And the first person I hired was Jeannie White Ginder, who was the mother of Ryan White. And that was sure. 1996. And um, I told them I'd like to get her into a high school, uh, her into a high school while she was there to speak. And they said, oh, that'll never happen. 
and they go, they won't allow you to have that in, in, in there to happen because they, they, you know, they associate the whole HIV AIDS thing still, this is 96, with a gay man's disease or intravenous, intravenous drug users. Um, right. But I had her come or speak, um, crowded audience. I did get her into the high school to speak. And Jeannie, at one point, we're sitting in the college van, and she said, um, I just think you're my new friend. You're my new good friend, and um, I want you to come and speak at the National Ryan White Youth Conference on HIV-AIDS. And I said, well, Jeannie, I said, I, um, I know about HIV-AIDS, but I don't. I'm not an expert at it. And that was going to be in Chicago, Illinois, by the way, at the Hotel Intercontinental. And she goes, no, you don't get my point. She goes, you have a story to tell. She goes, people rally around you. You're, you're just lovely. You're a good person. She goes, I really think you could make a lot of difference in a lot of people's lives. Well, I kept saying no. And then uh, right before she left, she was there for a couple of days. Um, I told her I would be there. So February of 90, uh, I think about this now, February of 97, she flew me to Chicago and, and I spoke to a luncheon of uh, 350, uh healthcare providers, students, all sorts of folks, and I got a standing ovation. And I just kind of told my story. Um, and that kind of uh, put a little spark in my step, if you want to call it that. And then the next person I met uh, a few years later in 2000 was um, Judy Shepard. And Judy and I have remained friends since uh, 2000. She came and spoke. And, again, uh, I was told that I'll, I'll never get her into a high school. Uh, never into a school because I always wanted to do community outreach with every speaker I had. And I got her into the Boyne City High School, and that's when I, I was able to introduce her and, and talk about me. And, and a lot of people knew me in the area. And then my third person, I always call these the three women in my life. The third person, believe it or not, is Dr. Ruth Westheimer, um, who, who was, you know, mm -hmm. growing up as a kid. I was upstairs in the house with my brother, and we listened to AM radio, and you know, she was talking about vaginas and penises and sex and things like that. And, you know, we knew right. my, my mother would have had a fit if, you know, we heard that. But we loved it. You know, we'd be listening to the radio and she'd get some kooky caller call in and be like, oh, that was so great. Well, the original so Dr. Make Drew this... for the cool kids today, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, she came and spoke and I had a reception for her. She worked the room. She was lovely. I don't talk to any of the speakers, you know, about my sexuality, um, my sexual orientation. But the funny part, and I'll, I'll do this as quick as I can, the next day I was taking her back to the airport in the college van. And uh, it had been a, a late night the night before, and I had to pick her up at 5 a.m. And I, the college van was a little high for her, and I didn't want to inappropriately grab her to get her in the van, you know, like hoist her in. But she got in, and we were driving to Pelston, Michigan, which is about 20 minutes away. And it was quiet, you know, and I was happy about the night before. It was packed, like overflowing. And I had a coffee, and it was shotgun with me and Dr. Ruth. And she goes, um, she starts laughing. You know, and I do this little hee-hee-hee <laughs> laughing. And I looked over at her, right. and I'm like, oh, really, what is she laughing about? And I said, Dr. Ruth, um, what is so funny? And she goes, Greg, I am just thinking. And I'm like, oh, okay. So we drove a little bit further, and then she kind of perked up, and she said, Greg, I must ask you a question. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, last night 
everything, your supervisor, everybody thinks you're fantastic. She goes, why is it that you don't have a boyfriend? And I was floored that she asked me this question. And, you know, <laughs> she's an actual doctor. So I thought, what am I going to tell her so I don't sound lame in my response? So I'm scrambling 5 a.m. in my head, almost at the airport, you know, which is a very small airport. And I said, well, Dr. Ruth, you know, I, I'm really um, busy with my work at, at the school. And here in northern Michigan, a lot of men are older. And then during the winter, they go on vacation. You know, they go to Palm Springs or they go to Florida or whatever. And the whole time I'm going, this is so, sounds so stupid. And she's going, oh, okay, okay. And then I remember for some reason something a friend said to me about um, what he thought uh, the men in northern Michigan looked like as a joke. So it popped in my head and I said, oh. And I said, you know, a friend of mine said that a lot of the men – wear flannel shirts and they don't dress really well. The gay men in Northern Michigan, they look like serial killers. <laughs> and she goes, Oh, I see. Thank you very much. And then with the end of the discussion, we pull in the airport or walking down and mind you, that's not security like we have now. And it's very small. And uh, she turned around. She goes, okay, give me a hug. She goes, I love you. And she gave me a kiss on the left cheek, kiss on the right. And she goes, by the way, I've made a decision. And I said, well, what's that, Dr. Ruth? And she goes, when I go back to New York City, I'm going to find you a boyfriend. And I was like, right on. And then she walked away. I ended up getting a call from her publicist about a week later. Uh, I'm included in her book on Dr. Ruth's Guide to College Life, uh, which is great. And they asked me a lot of stories and things relating to college. But the funny thing is my brother's got a really dry sense of humor, and I told him that story that, you know, Dr. Ruth was going to find me a boyfriend. And uh, right. my brother goes, oh, that's great, Greg. Now you have Dr. Ruth pimping for you. So it's, uh, it's a great story. So if it wasn't for those three individuals and a few more um, really pushing me, and, you know, I was working with a lot of entertainment agencies, uh, the ones that I'm represented through now, it's Bachelor Entertainment. Um, they, I had this makeshift flyer that I sent to them. And uh, they started booking me on gigs uh, part-time, and the college loved it because, you know, having somebody um, that was going around speaking nationally was great. And my first really big gig, other than the one that I had in Chicago with Jeannie White Kinder, uh, was in the very upper part of Wisconsin. Uh, it was the University of Wisconsin Stout which is about a hour from the Minneapolis airport. And they, they were so cute. I have a picture I'm looking at right now. It's across the room. They were so cute because they were selling tickets to have dinner with me. And I'm like, I am not a big deal, but they bought tickets <laughs> to have dinner with me. They had me in a small theater. And um, I felt at that point that I really can make a difference in a young person's life, which I've been doing most of my life with young people anyway. And um, I stayed at the college um, for quite a long time, and I was getting busier and busier. And then finally, Beth Schuler said, you know, we want to represent you full-time, but here's the clincher. Um, you need to be near a major airport to fly in and out. So I've been coming to Chicago for several years, and I thought, well, you know, I've always wanted to live in a big city. Um, I'm going to move. And my college was pretty devastated that I left. Uh, I loved that job. It was a great job. But I moved to Chicago, or 
I moved to Chicago in 2003, and I was no longer the big fish in the small pond. I was the small fish in the big pond, and it took course, about a yeah. good year. Yeah, you know, it's just it was a different thing, and 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 honestly, I had not paid rent because I was living uh, in a very nice apartment off the lobby of the residence hall, the student activities, and uh, I had not paid rent at the college, you know, because it was included in my um, pay for seven years and two prior to that interlock. And so coming to Chicago is a big eye-opener, you know, where you're paying (laughs) for parking and, you know, $1,100 a month. So I really pushed hard. My agency has been great. I do uh, some work off and on um, with the Matthew Shepard Foundation, um, good friends with Judy. I've, um, I, I was executive producer of a film about Matt, um, and, you know, I was out to the fence. I've been Laramie speaking. And then several years ago, I did a film about the Pulse nightclub shooting called 202 AM, which I solely uh, filmed, produced, and edited. And so that runs about 13 minutes. And I used that in my film. I was so uh, upset over what happened there and like many, many people across the world were. And I wanted to make sure that those lives were remembered and that it wasn't just a film about a shooting and death, but it was a memorial film. So it actually covers from the point of the film when that horrible shooting happened to the memorial it is now and and how it all has kind of transpired. And so, I again, I use it as a good talking space towards the end of my lecture program uh, on erasing hate and bigotry and talking about being better people and better stewards of our community and um, what is your journey and what kind of community do you want to live in, which is extremely important in the days that we're experiencing right now. Right, exactly. Well, how do you choose your topics? I mean, you said you have one program that you put in a video before you started the other two. What was your one program? Do you do like overarching all these topics in one speaking or does it kind of depend on the gig or how do you choose what you're speaking on? Yeah, it's, you know what I do and I think it's really important. So if I, if my agency says, okay, we want, uh, we have a gig for you in, um, Oh my God, um, New York or or Maine or whatever. So the school, I'll have a conversation with the school. I'll call them, and I'll ask them first. I'll first say thank you for booking me, and then I'll say what What are your needs? Do you have Have you had a hate crime on campus? Are you uh, having difficulty in diversity? Are there issues going on? Um, I, you know, I got booked at Lesley University, which is across from Harvard and Boston, because of the bullying that was going on with the softball, or the, excuse, yeah, the softball team um, at the school, and they had all the players come in, and I talked about bullying in sports, which I'm the least sports guy ever, which I thought was quite funny. So I always customize the lecture, but and when it comes down to it, um, we live in such a strange time now. So, you know, I do talk about hate and, and how hate has progressed in our country. And, and that evolves a lot depending on what the main issue is um, at times. Right. So, and I, and I talk about bullying with young people. And I, I'm very re- relatable, which I, it's a gift that I have because 
every audience says they don't feel like they're being talked to, like they're being talked with. And I interject personal stories, but I also inject a little bit of humor with that. Um, but I really hit home in uh, talking about community, and I, and I find a lot of schools or corporations that book me, they want to talk about community, how to be a better steward of your work or uh, a better student in that community, and how do you find that community when you're at school. So I customize all that, and then, you know, I give them the option, do you want to see the film I have um, on the Pulse Nightclub shooting? And, and it's the Racing Hate program um, is is what I do. So that's the one that gets booked the most. And then I always offer, because I liked it when I did it as a director of the lecture series back at North Central Michigan College in Batoski, I loved if I could get the speaker on campus but also if I could get them in a classroom setting or meeting with students. That, to me, was so important. So what I do is I offer for free with no extra charge, you know, depending on flight schedules and things like that or travel schedules. I will come in, and if you have a class or a lecture hall that would like to have me come in the afternoon prior to or, or the next day after the evening program or whenever the program is, I, I like that one-on-one because as, as an educator, I love that closeness with students where you can ask those questions and you can spark people and um, really rejuvenate a, a lot of their thinking policies. Because, you know, I'm in a bubble here in Chicago, you know, they, you know. I can walk down the street if I had a partner holding their hand and you can do certain things. But if I go into rural Iowa or other places like that, there's still – you know, LGBTQ groups or gay state alliances that are meeting secretly in classrooms or, you know, they're, they're saying certain things. And um, I, I just think it's so important that we're, we're better people overall. It's a, it's a human thing. It's not just an LGBTQ thing. And what kind of a research do you put into it uh, before you get into each community you have? You kind of do the background of what that temperature is of that community, or how do you kind of gauge that? Oh, great question. Yeah, um, I will look at the campus. Um, I like to see what their enrollment is. Um, do they have a support system on campus? Is there a queer group on campus? Is there a uh, queer, uh, queer resources center, um, and what kind of resources? You know, I've gone to the point where if it's an organization on campus and they're struggling, like they don't have a lot of funding because I will tell you, a lot of these gay straight alliances, queer groups, LGBT groups, when that, those student activity monies come out, they're at the bottom of that feeding chain. So they may only get an allocation of $200 or $1,000 a semester. It's not a lot, and that doesn't pay for my fee. So a lot of times when I'm looking and researching, I will find materials and things that I will spend my own money on and take a box of stuff and give it to them. And, and like, uh, my library has gone down considerably. Of a lot of books I've had, resources, I've even, um, you know, asked friends, listen, can you donate some money so I can buy some uh, pins from the local store, the pride pins or whatever, the, tr you know, transgender pins, things like that, or flags or anything. 
and I'll take it to them to give them some supplies because um, they just don't have it. And that's just me being me. Um, so, and then I look at also where the, the college is at, the university is at, the school is at, uh, what kind of resources are in the community. Is there a PFLAG group on the outskirts? And then I personally will invite the PFLAG group or other groups in the area to my lecture so it's a community event. And I don't know any nice. other speaker okay. that does that. And what's the toughest question you've had come up from an audience so far? The toughest question? Um, why well, I always get asked uh, why I'm single. <laughs> that's that's the $6 million question. Um, a lot of the stuff comes down to uh, religious stuff. So um, I haven't had any real tough stuff. Um, a lot of it, because I do talk about my parents and the prejudice I went through, so some of them will, will talk about that because, you know, I talk about uh, the LGBTQ suicide and um, just, you know, if parents are there, I direct, you know, challenge the parents in the audience. And some of those parents in the audience have actually lost their son or daughter in a suicide or their son or daughter has attempted it. But uh, as far as questions go, I, I remember one because I bring this up often. Um, I have, uh, when I, when my lecture ends, you know, I have a lot of people come in line that, um, which still blows my mind. They want to autograph, but mostly they want a, a hug um, or they want to say, thank you for being here, which it, it just warms my heart. But I always get, the group on campus, and I'm not singling anybody out, but this this is like happens 90% of the time if they have this group on campus. It's the Campus Christian Fellowship Group. And, um, you know, that's their sense of community. You know, they, they love what they talk about. They do the scripture reading. And, you know, uh, a lot of the groups of the Campus Christian Fellowship, they have uh, the little flyers uh, that, you know, go underneath the windshield wipers at times. Um, 10 steps to heaven or uh, 10 steps to get out of hell or whatever. You know, they hand them right. to you and then they leave. Yeah. So I think you know what I mean. Well, I was at Slippery Rock University, which is in Pennsylvania. It was a beautiful school. And I was going to meet with uh, the local flag and queer group afterwards at a local pub and have something to eat and extend the conversation after my lecture. And so the student, <laughs> the student activities, uh, person in charge female she said uh mr baird there is two individuals in line from the campus christian fellowship and they want to speak with you she was very nervous and um <laughs> i said okay I, I said i got this it's all right so it was a young cute couple you know young 20 22 something like that and they were waiting in line and they walked up to me and they go here and the young lady handed me one of those pamphlets and they walked away that was it. And I saw the student activities director go, oh, goodness, you know. And then I said, wait a minute. Come back here. And then she got nervous again. So the couple come up, and she goes, yes, sir. And I said, Were you, did you attend my lecture? And they go, oh, yes, we did. And I said, well, what do you think? And, the, and the, both of them said, well, it made us a little nervous. And I said, why did it make you nervous? And the guy said, it challenged my way of thinking. And she goes, um, and then the uh, female counterpart said, um, we just don't know. It's, it just kind of challenged our thinking. And I said, well, my job is done then. And 
I said, I need to ask you a question, though. Why in the world uh, would you come up to me and hand me a pamphlet? He goes, well, this is what we do. This is what we, we believe in uh, Christ and being saved. And, and I said, uh, do you think LGBTQ people can uh, have that spiritual experience, you know, go to church? Because often, you know, I came from a family where you went to church and then you thought being gay, you're going to hell and, you know, the church doesn't want you. And I said, there are churches that provide, you know, that kind of comfort, that home. And, um, you know, they, they just said to me, well, um, we're just nervous about everything, but um, we really believe in what we do. And I said, do you love your organization? Oh, yes, we, we love our organization. And I said, well, I love what I do, and I love the people I meet. I said, so tell me, if you love your organization and you love the Word of God and, you, and you're really into um, helping people out, why would you hand a stranger a piece of paper and walk away from them without even saying hello and tell me what you're about? And they were totally floored. And they go, we, we totally understand what you mean. And I said, have a very good evening. And they walked away. And the student activities director said, man, I don't know how you handled that, but that was so good, you know. So it's there situations you know. like that that I've I, um, you got to treat people as individuals and unique stewards. Um, everybody is walking a different um, beat. We all have stories to tell, and I, and I tell that to everybody. I believe storytelling changes, you know, policies. It changes hearts and minds, and uh, we need to continue to do that. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, we need to hear those stories. We need to make changes. Um, so exactly. I'm doing my part as best as I can, you know. There you go. Good on you for that. We only have a Thank couple you. of minutes left here, and I want to go into the spices because everyone knows I'm a huge foodie <laughs> on the show, and you did do spices too. So we can't go without uh, doing spices for the last five minutes here. Talk about what got you into that business. <laughs> um, I love to cook. Um, and uh, and I like to cook healthy. I lost 80 pounds back in 2007. So I am still enjoy the, uh, you know, I was a big carb guy, not too much a sweet guy, but I, I like the savory stuff. So, I always used a uh, house seasoning, which was basically uh, kosher salt, some garlic, um, a few other things I threw in there, parsley and things like that. And um, I started messing with it. And so for years, if I had friends come over, I would bring it out. And um, I really, I, it was like in a bowl, like you pinch it, you know, and you throw it on, you know, kind of thing. And my right. wife's like, you know, you should really bottle that and sell it. I go, oh, no, I don't need another thing to do. So this, I've been doing it for years. So right around 2017, I went to the Old Town Spice House, which is here in Chicago, and I bought some bottles, and I printed up some tacky little label, and I had a former student that I loved, uh, who's a friend of mine now, call me Gregor all the time. Hey, Gregor. So I thought, what a cute mm-hmm. little thing. So I thought, I'm going to call it Gregor's House Seasoning. So I slapped this weird label on it, had my picture on it, you know, um, yeah, and I was selling them for $10 a piece, and people started buying them, and they loved it. So I kept mixing this stuff, so I was buying more bottles. Well, then I came up with a, a Italian pizza pasta seasoning, 
that has Italian cheeses in it. And it was something I kind of tested out and I thought, what am I doing? And so I start bottling that and people are like, man, this is great on pizza, pasta, eggs. And so as a promo, I would ask people on Facebook, take a picture of the, of the bottle with food. I mean, what a great promo. And they start doing that. So then um, I added a few more. Well, then during COVID, um, you know, people were cooking. I thought, I really need to come up with a website. Because everybody goes, where can I find your seasoning? It was always on Facebook. So I came up with gregorseasoning.com. My lecture uh, website is gregrbeard.com. But I came up with Gregor Seasoning, and I worked on it. I have a friend that uh, offered to do uh, for marketing uh, new labels, and they're fabulous. So I have five seasonings now, and people were buying them uh, a lot because I forgot everybody's home cooking. So I have uh, – these are all Gregor's. I have the house seasoning, the Italian pizza pasta seasoning, a pepper extraordinaire, which has got some incredible hatch green chilies in it, which are you can't find really in the store. Um, and then I have a, a backyard barbecue dry rub, which friends uh, tell me it, it tastes like um, like barbecue, like uh, the barbecue that's on barbecue chips. I've even had friends oh, make nice. barbecue okay. chips with that. And then the last one is uh, out of a suggestion. And then my best friend uh, actually came up with the name. It's uh, it's called rosemary with a twist, and it's uh, sea salt with um, fresh rosemary that's been baked into the salt with lemon juice and lemon zest, and you can use it on fish, veggies, and things like that. So I have five. Not doing any more at this point, although I, when I had three, I said I wasn't going to do any more. But, um, you know, I ship them. If I go home up to northern Michigan or other places, I will always ask people, do you want these because it will save you on the shipping. So um, it's been a fun little side job. Um, nice. I'm not, I'm not going to build a condo or a house with it, but it, it's kept me busy and it's been a really fun side job for me to do. And uh, I use really good products locally sourced and some of it's organic and uh, the containers are in glass with a big shaker top. And so, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Congratulations. I Thank love you. That. I like that. People experiment with that. Well, we're out of time, Greg. Let everyone know where they can find you. Let them know your website and where they can follow you on social media. Okay, so I am uh, Greg R. Baird on Facebook. I am on Instagram at the Gregor Speaks. Uh, I'm also uh, got into that crazy TikTok, so I'm on there, which I, I'm addicted to. And then my webpage, uh, you can check everything out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram, all those things. And then my, um, face, uh, excuse me, my website is gregrbears.com. And there's links to everything. There's uh, a rundown of my lecture programs. You can contact me directly. And if you want to order my fantastic seasoning, I'm telling you it's good stuff. It's gregrsseasoning.com. Fantastic. I love it all, and I hope people look you up. And if you need a, need a great speaker, be sure to book Greg to come to a city near you once we can travel again, hopefully. Uh, but exactly. definitely, I appreciate you being on the Left of Straight Show. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you to all everybody that was listening. I appreciate it.
All right. Well, guys, uh, stay in line for me, Greg. And we're going to play out here with a little bit of Thrill of the Chase from my buddy Joseph, or Hayden Joseph. When we come back, we're going to be talking to my next guest today. He is a Ph.D. and comedian, Mr. Matt Ballas. You're listening to Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. This was fun. I hope we do it again. But make me wait a while before giving in. Cause if it's too easy, I am gonna get bored. Give me a lift, so I'm bound to one more. I'm not a fan of feeling sure. It ain't higher.
you guys. We are back. That was my buddy Hayden Joseph. If you missed his interview, he was on just the other day. You can go ahead and check the Left of Straight archives for that. Hayden just moved from San Francisco to Nashville to pursue that singing-songwriting career, so we wish him all the luck in that. Guys, it's time to bring our next guest on. He was recommended to me by my intern, who's the man in the control booth right now, Miss Justine. He has a PhD in psychology and is also a comedian. That's right. While getting his doctorate, he started performing stand-up in Philadelphia, ended up graduating and moving to the clubs of New York City, and now appears all over the country in comedy clubs and speaking at schools and corporate events. He's recognized with the National Speakers Association, providing a positive, science-based, and seriously entertaining approach to substance abuse prevention and is the author of A Better High. It's always nice to have a doctor in the house, so please welcome for the very first time, Dr. Matt Bellis. Matt, how you doing, buddy? I'm great, Scott. You nailed it. You really, you introduced me better than most people that I've known for a long time. That was Thank you. That Every once great. in a while, the broken clock is right twice a day, right? I, I, I Sometimes <laughs> I can hit, that, hit it out of the park there. How's it going, my friend? How's everything in beautiful downtown New Jersey? Yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're enjoying the summer, and obviously the cases in New Jersey are on the lower end, so going to the beach is something that I've enjoyed uh, a few times this summer and getting out a little bit more, although obviously these, these are tough tough times. I have two kids, ages seven and 10. And I mean, it's just, it's just really the uncertainty. I think you need to be a psychologist at times to uh, catch yourself. <laughs> the stress, you know, can come on in waves. So I'm doing all right. We'll talk about that and the homeschooling and all that stuff and all that. I mean, that's a whole brand new family dynamic. How was, how was that to kind of get yourself in, involved in that? You're usually out on the road all the time. I mean, 200 gigs a year or so, and now uh, everyone's home. How did that work out? Yeah, I was in California actually on uh, March 11th at a school called the, the Webb School um, near Pomona and I spoke there, got a red-eye flight back to New Jersey. I landed, and I got a text message that said the school closed for the rest of the year. This closed just that. And a few hours later, oh, no. done. And I thought, oh, my God. Wow. And so, you know, over the next two weeks, every gig that I had booked for the spring, you know, quickly disappeared from my calendar. And I found myself waking up at 4 in the morning every night with this chest pain that I was like, I don't know, is this coronavirus or panic attack? I don't really know <laughs> what this is. But it turned out it was just my economic collapse. So it was panic, and I was lucky not to have the virus. But I thought for sure, being on go. all the planes I was, I would get it, but I, I didn't. And then I went immediately into becoming a mediocre homeschool teacher and just <laughs> struggling mightily. Uh but I have to say, like, there were a lot of silver linings, and, you know, I noticed right away that the streets turned into, like, 1979, kids out on bikes and rollerblading, you know, right? sunset every yeah. night, and I thought, oh, my God, this is, this reminds me of my childhood, so it certainly can't say it's all bad. Um, there you go, exactly, uh, There, and we need to look for the silver lining, because we're hitting round two here in some places. So we kind of got to take those lessons and hopefully 
take him to heart and see if we can finally get this right the second time around, maybe. Talk about a little background, though, Matt. I want to hear about um, where did you grow up and what kind of a kid were you? Grew up in northern New Jersey, Tony Soprano country, a town called Montclair. So every every Italian kid like me grows up with that, like, Sopranos accent. Of, oh, what is this? you got to be kidding me. You look at this guy over <laughs> here, like that kind of a North Jersey thing. And um, in a very type A family, my mom was a coach and an administrator. She actually was a, a vice principal at my high school, which is horrifying. <laughs> right? Oh my mom would be the vice principal, disciplining my friends oh. for a living. <laughs> and uh, it was, you get stopped in the hallway like, your mother gave me detention. And I'm like, uh, I live with her. I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> it's, it's much worse. <laughs> She's in my house every day. Um, there you go. But my, oh I was I a good kid. Yeah, I mean, I I was a good kid because I, I uh, had a brother five years older than me. He's still five years older than me, right? That's how math works. But he <laughs> um, he was a, a troublemaker when he was in high school and college, and I definitely went a different direction. Early on, I love him, but back then it was it was chaotic. And my mom made me go to a, a leadership conference where I met a lot of friends who had a huge influence on my life, and they were kids who didn't, you know, get involved in the party scene. Um, so I definitely was focused on sports and school uh, and and comedy. I mean, I loved stand up from an early age. Didn't think I could do it, but I love watching it. And it's amazing that here I am, 46, and basically my life revolves around trying to be active, not an athlete anymore, but, you know, try to be active as much as I can, <laughs> comedy and, and science, you know, and psychology. So I'm sort of still doing the same things I was doing back then. Well, that is a lot of schooling, my friend. And to put comedy on top of it, did you ever sleep? <laughs> How did you kind of get through those <laughs> early, early? And and we're anti-drug, which I'm so happy about. I don't know how that combination even gets together in college life anymore. Well, I can tell you in my 20s, when I started my PhD program, a woman at a at a cocktail party sees me, you know, with a glass of Pellegrino water, and she's got her wine, and she's like, you don't drink? I'm like, no. What a great accomplishment. And I said, <laughs> well, I also am get, getting a PhD. She goes, yeah, but not drinking. That's amazing. You need to tell me more. You know, like she didn't think it was possible <laughs> to do that. That's but I, I think when – when you choose as a young person not to enter into that world, you free up time and money and energy. And for me, all of it went into school and eventually school plus stand up. And stand up only started as, as a, um, an activity to kind of blow off steam under the pressures of grad school. But I was already speaking. I starting after that camp I went to in high school, I went to college and created a student group that still exists. The group is all about prevention on campus. We we were given a fraternity house, even though we were a student group. So it was kind of a big deal. And I started getting speaking gigs at an early age. I wasn't very good, but I knew I wanted them to be funny. So here I was in grad school, still doing some speaking, but I, I saw comedy as like my style and began going to open mics in Philly at a club called The Laugh House where Kevin Hart got his start and others. And what a great right. club that was to start in. I mean, it's just a great experience because the Laugh House is the kind of club where even for an open mic, they would draw a big crowd on a Wednesday 
And if you sucked, they would boo you, right? <laughs> Which is horrible. But if you came and brought it, you brought the energy, they would cheer you. So what's better for a starting out comedian than knowing if you're good or not? You know, knowing sure. what jokes work, you know, which joke is working or not. So I think looking back at those days, yes, it was incredibly busy, but such fertile ground for creativity. Here I am, you know, learning neuropsychology at Drexel in my program and then doing stand-up, started doing it on the weekends, got paid for it and like, and speaking too. So it was like all these balls are in the air, very creative time, but I knew I, it couldn't go on forever because it's just, you'll get, you'll get burnt out. Right. Well, that's amazing though. And, and when did you kind of, did you, did you go into it thinking you were going to start a practice and kind of help people through the drug and alcohol or did you, did the speaking thing come relatively quickly? So you never went that route. Do you, do you, do you ever pri- uh, practice privately? I guess what I'm asking. Yeah, you know, the speaking thing was a slow burn. It was it was developing through grad school. I knew I loved it, but I didn't I didn't know how, how do you do that for a living? Like it just didn't kind of enter my brain. Like how could you get so busy that you could survive off this? So I didn't think that would be a primary career. And I was focused as a neuropsychologist, mainly working in hospitals, treating traumatic brain injury patients and anyone who suffers. Uh, any condition that affects their brain. And I didn't know if it was going to be private practice or in the hospital setting. Um, but what was happening was the speaking was growing, especially when I started bringing more stand-up into it. And when I graduated in 05 and did a, a one-year postdoc, the speaking was just overwhelming me. And I said, wow, life is sending a message. And I had a, a wonderful mentor in grad school who got it early on. He's like, Matt, this is your thing. you got to pursue this. You can integrate all of what you do, the comedy, the psychology. And I slowly started to just focus on that as a, as a speaking business. I did less, uh, you know, club dates because uh, I got married and eventually had a family. And I knew, like, God, I can't be here on the week and on the weekend. So it all became right. about speaking. And I, I stopped doing formal psychology in 2006, quite a while ago. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to get into the career part and I definitely want to get into the book and this good work because I love talking about it. I've been, I've been a big um, proponent of no drugs, no alcohol. I, I can casually do it, but I never, I took my mom's, I stole my mom's cigarette when I was 12 years old, took them with my friends behind the women's club and did such a big inhale that I cough for like three days and now I can't even bring up my fingers to my lips without coughing. So I got kind of lucky that way where I never gateway into anything from cigarettes, but I want to go, your wife is also a psychologist. So I got to get this family dynamic here. I mean, is there like a psych ninja death match? How do you guys argue? This has got to be kind of interesting. Yeah. Our kids have no chance of being normal. That's the first <laughs> message there, right? She is an eating disorder psychologist, and I'm all about, you know, substance abuse prevention. So we see <laughs> budding problems. But the arguments piece, I mean, I, I used to do a lot of bits about this. And, you know, that was one of the first bits I, I wrote about it was that we have really short arguments. My wife once was like, Matt, what you said, you know how that makes me feel? I'm like, yes, I do. That's all the time we have <laughs> for tonight. And I wish that was true because the reality is uh, the arguments can they go on forever. There's constantly a, you know, a sort of a psychoanalysis happening in the middle of it. And um, you just have to be, 
yeah, so patient. And I'm I'm still a guy, and I'm still, I'm still I still have that <laughs> that North Jersey type A, you know, kind of thing where I just you know have a hard time sitting with the feelings. Even when I know what I did something wrong, and or I'm I'm not being as empathic as I should be, and um, I don't know. It it uh, it's good for me though. I think having a psychologist wife has has made be made me a um a more compassionate person for others and and myself too because she's keep, sort of keeps me in check i bet especially if she specialized in eating disorders i'm sure you probably had one or two jokes that just did not land at all i i know well, i would that would be kind of tough <laughs> i'm trying to, to remember. watch I, mean, I wrote some jokes like i wrote some jokes that i thought were just like really good they're winners and i if i mention them to my wife that they're you know about her and she doesn't like them like forget it <laughs> you can't do that joke that's what happened i'm trying to remember one of them for you now to see if you think it's funny but um there there have been some over the years and i mean i think one of the first things i did was started writing about my family and and my relationships because that's the kind of style i have as a comedian um you know break down relationships and uh, right. interpersonal stuff i find that so fascinating and so when I first got engaged um, to Dara, she went to her college reunion and I couldn't go at, at a gig or something. And so she gets back from the reunion and we weren't even like married. I think we were like two years away from getting married at that point, but she's in tears. She's upset. And I'm like, what, what happened? And she goes, ah, at the reunion, I saw my ex-boyfriend. Yeah. And I don't know how to tell you this. And I'm like, Oh my God. You know, and I'm just like, this is going to be horrible. And she goes, I had feelings for him. And I'm like, okay. so I had feelings for like eight people today. What, like, what are you talking about? Feelings? <laughs> <laughs> Back to the guy part again. Back to the guy yeah, part. Yeah, like okay. my, my brain switched. And, you know, and again, there's the joke. That's the punchline. But in reality, you know, I'm a sensitive guy. So, of course, I was at first horrified. But it did make us stronger to talk, to be able to talk so candidly about you know, having feelings and having that be okay and, you know, not acting on them. And I, I think there, there's just an example of how it was so helpful. Cause I think in my family growing up, we wouldn't even talk about it. Like there's right. people would have strong feelings. My family yell and scream and then never talk about it again. And that's not healthy. That's yeah. That that's kind of great that you're able to get through that. I just, I just can't imagine two psychologists in the family. I just, you come home from date night or something and do you talk about all the people sitting around you and what their problems are? <laughs> oh, you can I mean, you, you, uh, you think you analyze your friends and family, Scott, you should see us like leaving, leaving the holidays is like an NFL post game show. We have charts <laughs> and graphs, you know, I talk about my dad so much. I feel like we should bill him. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. oh my God. Send him the bill. I will say that I feel for my wife because not only is she an eating disorder psychologist, but she has a husband who's obsessed with food, me, I'm Italian, love cooking, and she has a Jewish mom who's obsessed with her eating and the kids eating. It's like she can't get away from it. It's all day with the food. Oh, my goodness. You're right there. Oh, my goodness. Let's start getting into better highs and everything. I have to admit right up front, I am a caffeine-aholic. I am coffeeed up morning, noon, and night more than I should. Um, but that is my drug of choice. Talk about, and it makes me feel real good. Let's talk about the dangers of drugs. Because in the LGBTQ community, we're like, 
20 to 30 percent chance of having some kind of a um, drug or alcohol addiction. I think it's like, what, 9 percent maybe nationally. So I really want to talk about maybe some of the triggers or some of the things that we need to avoid and what your thoughts are on that part to start with. Sure. You know, there's a great book, by the way, about caffeine by Michael Pollan, who's a, a science writer. And he, the book's called Caffeine, I believe. And it came out a few months ago. And it just kind of breaks down what it does to our brain and uh, how it affects our sleep. I don't know if you're someone who um, wakes up needing that. You probably are, right? Needing that first cup of coffee to, you know, quote unquote, function. And um, a lot of people say that, right? And it turns out that that is caffeine withdrawal. So you sleep all night and your caffeine levels drop in your bloodstream. And then all of a sudden you wake up and you don't feel like yourself because you're withdrawing. You know, it doesn't look like, you know, sort of heroin withdrawal. So people don't think of it that way, but it certainly is. And and once you get it in you and you, you sort of feel normal again. So it is fascinating to view it in that lens and also to take breaks from it, you know, vacation from caffeine, just to see like, well, what's, what's different? You know, am I thinking more clearly? Am I, sleeping better, you know, just kind of experiment on yourself. That's sort of how a better high looks at natural highs. Like what are some of the things we can do to experiment ourselves to see activities that make us feel relaxed or feel happy. Um, and it's not going to be as intense like that. As, a, as a drug, but they're going to be better highs in the sense that they're, you know, they're, they're better for you. Uh, I mean, the piece, I, I'm glad you brought up the LGBT community and, and, and the different, the higher rates, uh, substance abuse nationally, I mean, you know, you could sort of inform me, but my take on it is, you know, it might be a, a, a cultural thing around a certain scene, right? I mean, the price of admission perhaps to to hang in certain groups, certain parties, clubs, whatever, might be that you're using too. So there's this implicit pressure, even if you don't want to, you got to feel like you have to, to, to be a part of it. Uh, and and right. that, that plagues a, a lot of people who want to, to be accepted. You know, you look at teenagers, especially college students, um, often use a lot more than they want to because they, they feel that's the price of admission. Right, and I think that's exactly it. It's a lot of it is they're not sure if they're being accepted at home. They're afraid of coming out at home. They're afraid of that. So they find these alternative places to hang out to be part of something like that. And that's where a lot of it, I do believe, comes from. Uh, but a lot of it is just the coping mechanism to depress with things that we put in our head that might not even be there. Um, thinking of, of the the trauma of the coming out and you're going to not be accepted by your parents, by your best friends, by your brothers and sisters. And I think we put so much pressure on ourselves that that is one way to escape from it. But that's what I like about your book is you give alternate ways of escaping. So talk about how all this book came about. Um, was there research involved as far as clinical research or tell me how, how it evolved? Sure. So, you know, it's, it's funny. I was thinking as you were saying that too, the, the big part that shame plays in, in maintaining mm. uh, addiction, right? So maybe the younger right. generation is experiencing less of that, I hope, um, in coming out, but you know, my generation and, and, Older folks, you know, may carry a lot of that with them. And certainly when you feel lots of shame, alcohol and drugs are always there to fill the void. Um, right. And they work for a short period of time. They're effective for a period of time. And that's, that's unfortunately why they're, they're used so heavily. 
But with, with the book, you know, the idea was I was already speaking about natural highs on stage to students. And my wife, you know, said to me one day, like, you know, you, they want something from you. When you're done, they want a piece of you to carry with them. Like, why don't you really write about this? And you can go into more detail. And, and she was so right. And then she asked me, like, do you have any evidence for these natural highs that they work? And I started laughing because I'm like, geez, I should probably know more about this, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> sure enough, like, once you delve into the neuroscience literature about laughing and running and eating and social support, like it is incredible the amount of work that's been done over the last decade or so. And I knew right away, I have to break this down for people uh, and make it accessible, but also do the comparison. So each chapter is a comparison between like the natural highs and the chemical high uh, that people use to kind of mimic it. So I'll give an example, like running, and other forms of exercise are a better high to THC. And that might sound strange, like apples and oranges, but it turns out when you look biochemically, you run and your brain releases an endorphin called anandamide, which chemically looks a lot like THC. And it has some of the similar effects, right? After a run, you might feel focused and calmer and, um, you know, you get the munchies sometimes after a workout. So similar to right. THC, but yet the, the negative side effects are just tremendous, especially for young people under the age of, uh, you know, even 21, but certainly 14, 15 years old. If you're consuming lots of THC, we see memory affected in a negative way. We see mood affected in a negative way. But running does the complete opposite. Mood and memory get better. And there's a neurological basis for it where a part of your brain called the hippocampus gets larger and memory capacity improves. So that's the kind of thing I wanted to put out there in a non-judgmental way for people to read and say, Oh, okay, this is, this is interesting. I can actually improve my brain functioning with these natural highs. I love that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Talk about what, um, what are some of the better so you, you're lecturing you're talking to college kids you're talking to groups what are some of the aha moments that you've seen people really kind of pick up on that kind of makes you excited to keep doing this i, I mean i love a good challenge obviously doing stand-up in the seven years i was doing clubs regularly and so you kind of thrive off of those moments where the audience they don't like you <laughs> they don't want to laugh at you uh they don't want to listen to you and I've had some of those moments, like early on, it was just so tough before I even had much comedy in, in my program. I met um, Patch Adams, the real Patch Adams, the guy that they made the movie about. And uh, right. I was working at the NIH. NIH had uh, a program in Bethesda for young uh, budding neuroscientists. And um, I got to do a summer uh, internship there. And it was an incredible program because they had famous speakers every week on campus. And sometimes they had like small groups of students just meeting with them. And that's what it was with Patch Adams. And I, I pulled them aside after the talk and I told them, look, I'm interested in speaking to students about substance abuse and um, it's, it's really tough, but I really want to do it. And his advice to me was keep talking to them, even if they're not listening. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Because a lot of the students I noticed back then just didn't want to listen. They didn't care. And it was an experiment to see like, what could I do to engage them? What novel thing could I say? What interactive could I do just to get the students to pay attention? And if I could keep them laughing long enough, then I could hit them with 
the message. And even if they disagreed with it, I knew they were listening to it. So that was like the first challenge um, to, to, you know, see if I could pull that off. And once I did, it made right. me hunger for, for more of it. Does that answer your question? No, it does. I like that. And I mean, you're going out there 200 times plus a year, hopefully again, very soon. Uh, talk, <laughs> yeah, about, <laughs> talk about when you're talking with these people, um, I was watching clips and you get some great laughs. When people come up and talk to you afterwards, do, are they talking more about the subject? Or are they talking more about the delivery through your humor? Um, do you do you feel it? Can you feel it getting through both ways? Is what I'm asking, I guess. Oh yeah, you feel the message you know, that's interesting. Across. That's interesting. Um, you know, I, I've I've had so many moments afterwards that are moving, and it could be a, a teenager who opens up about um, a sexual assault. I've had that happen numerous times. And I find that interesting mm-hmm. because that's not necessarily a part of the program, but they feel as though I'm approachable. Like, oh, this is the first psychologist who I feel like he gets me. You know, I was laughing, listening to him, and I want to share this. And I had one time, oh, this is funny, but not funny. An eighth grader, a young lady who, there's like a long line behind her. And she stands up and says to me, I've never told anybody this before, but I was sexually assaulted by my boyfriend. Please, please don't tell anyone. I'm thinking like everyone can hear you. You understand? Oh, <laughs> no. line can hear you. Right? Oh, my and she makes me promise I'm not going to tell anyone. I was like, okay, I'm not going to tell anyone. Um, but like, as soon as you leave, I'm, I have to share this with a counselor. We've got to, you know, talk to the, counselor about this and, um, you know, get, get some help. Um, and I don't think I phrased it quite like, I didn't, I didn't say to her at that moment, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of tell on you. It was more like what I'll do right. in these situations is talk to the counselor and just say, Hey, can you keep an eye out for this person? And if she shares with you something about the program, maybe use it as an entree to just discuss and see, hey, you know, I saw you speak, talking to the speaker, you know, what, what's going on there. Uh, so my answer to your question is that the, the responses vary. Sometimes they're like that, really heartfelt, and they, they just need someone to talk to. Um, it is occasionally about substance abuse, people who want to stop using. But more often than not, it's the student um, or adult who doesn't use, like yourself, who feels really validated, maybe for the first time. You know, they're in a world where it seems like everybody's drinking doing drugs, and you walk in here and say you don't, and you're proud of it, and you made us laugh, and it's like, God actually feel like I could live that life and be okay. That's the majority of the people who respond to me. And I, I feel like, wow, they, that's why I'm here. It's not just to make people laugh. It's to, to make people feel heard right. you know, who, who live that, that healthy lifestyle. Because so often in our society, you know, folks who are trying to be healthy can feel like they're in the minority. I mean, look at the mask wearing thing. What a perfect example of how difficult prevention is, right? We all know we should wear a mask. We know it could reduce your risk. But we've got how many people won't do it? And they've got their reasons why they think they're right. And so you almost feel like if you're in that place that's behaving that way, you almost feel like, God, am I the the wrong one for wearing this mask? Am I being judged? Like, no, right. you're doing the right oh, thing. Sure. You know, keep going. No. But you're just in, a, in an environment where that's looked down upon. Well said. I mean, it, it, it has a perfect correlation today. And 
what have you really what did the writing the book do for you i mean you've you've had your degree you kind of know a little bit about the psychology behind it talk about what it did for you to get this out on paper for you to write it did it kind of any aha moments for yourself for sure i mean i i think when you realize the the research that's behind something it gives you so much more confidence to deliver it because mm. information out there today is so you know muddled you got kids going on you know google or whatever and they can come up with any piece of information that supports their bias but when you can compile a dozen research studies that are showing certain benefits of different activities for your mental health i mean one of the big ones that i i emphasize a lot is social support you know who is part of your team that has your back and it turns out the more positive social support you have the less likely you are to show symptoms of of anxiety depression thoughts of suicide and sure enough when this Mm -hmm. pandemic hit and i lost my entire business for the spring and i'm i'm fearing being out in the street and being homeless who was it that helped me my loved ones my family my friends and clients of mine who showed me, no, no, it's going to be fine. Here's why. And my anxiety came down and my depression turned into, oh, wait, I can actually be helpful in a, in a new way. Um, and it got me excited again about speaking, you know, over Zoom and doing other things. And so social support is, is powerful. And, and being able to speak, you know, from research and the book helped me spend time on it because it's such a busy world. That if I was just speaking all the time, I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't have spent the amount of hours, you know, reading the research and verifying everything. Because once you put it down on paper, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, more powerful. Thing, I can right. tell you yeah. on, a, on a negative side, like writing stories about my brother and his party behavior made my mom so upset. And I'm like, Mom, I've been talking about this forever. But it was seeing it in print, <laughs> you know, <laughs> made her right. want to just strangle me. Right. Oh, my goodness. Well, and Justine uh, gave me a great follow-up question on what you just said as well. Uh, you talk about that support afterwards. Um, after you've left the school, does schools continue the program? Um, how do they reinforce your teachings? Do you have any way to kind of keep in touch with these students or anything? How does the program continue I, on? I do, and I think a silver lining of this pandemic is I'm going to make the virtual stuff more uh, prominence, right? So after I do live programs, like for much less, you can have me in your classrooms and let's go further with the message. Um, the book has helped a lot with that. Certainly schools have purchased the book. They'll teach it in health classes. I had one school in Litchfield, Connecticut, uh, early March. I spoke to their entire school and they asked me if they could buy books for every senior uh, in the in the class because it was the last time the seniors were together in one room with my presentation to them. And it just kind of choked me up. So I signed a copy. I love that. One of them. So that's nice. You can leave, leave the message behind, but there are lesson plans um, that some teachers have created. And I share those with schools so they can go further, but honestly, the best sort of effect of uh, having me in uh, to a school or a business is when they can carry on the message in some sort of a group. So, in a school setting, it might be, hey, we want to take your idea of natural highs and we want to put on a you know, natural high, what they call Olympics, right? You have like different events that students can participate in. 
Um, I've seen some that have been videotaped and sent to me, and it's, like, so heartening when you, like, students say, oh, no, we want to do this creative, cool thing. It's our natural high and, and uh, promoted. And I'm like, God, that, I didn't even imagine that. But students' creativity, you know, that, that spawns that. There was a company I spoke at in, um, in New York City, outside of New York City in September, mm-hmm. where they've got a group that focuses on mental health for their employees. And they brought me in to be part of that conversation. And it was so incredible to see after the program was over, how many emails I got from scientists, you know, who are some of which are now working on the uh, antibody treatments for, for COVID-19, but seeing how they incorporated it individually into their life, the idea of just, Hey, I got to move around more in my day because it actually improves my mood you know, I've been sitting too long, something as simple as that, you know, you feel like, wow, I made an impact, um, you know, just by spreading that message. That's awesome. Justine has given me killer notes over while we're speaking here. So I absolutely love it. Uh, her next question is, what is the difference between speaking for students and speaking for adults? Do you have a different delivery, a different tone? Talk about the, those dynamics. Well, not every joke works with students, right? I mean, some references <laughs> they just don't get at all. <laughs> Look at you like, what? Um, and, and vice versa. I mean, there are some jokes I do for adults, and they just, you know, like they don't understand, well, why, why are you doing the voice of Rick from Rick and Morty? I don't, you know, because that was a thing that grew <laughs> out of working with, like, I, I have the voice. Did you ever watch Rick and Morty, by the way? Am I, I have. I, 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 can, I can you have the reference. You got it. So, like, well, the first time I tried to, to do that, like, hey, Morty, I turned myself into a pickle. I'm Pickle Rick. Like, in front of adults, so they just look at me like, <laughs> what is this guy doing, right? So, you got to figure out which joke. And the one joke that never works with, uh, especially middle school kids, that always works with adults is um, telling them I, I played football in high school, which is probably hard for you to believe since I'm built more like a reader. And it's true. I'm not a big guy, right? But Middle schoolers will look at you like, yeah, you are built like a reader. You know, they just don't even, they don't find it funny. It's just like you were just matter-of-factly telling us this, um, whereas adults find it, uh, you know, funny. But I think my style um, with young, with stu- any students is more energetic. You know, you, you have to move on stage to, to really capture their attention. And um, sometimes it's even about the faces you make or the, the, the noises you make, um, even more so than the punchlines. With adults, um, to me, I can be more cerebral. I can be more sarcastic. And, and I, I love them both. I mean, I, I found reasons to really enjoy uh, both groups. As I get more gray hair, I do get more calls to do, you know, adult <laughs> groups. So. And what, um, what would you give listeners advice for good conversation starters about uh, drug or alcohol abuse? If someone's listening out there, and wants to talk to one of their friends, one of their students, one of their kids, one of their parents, what are some good conversation starters you recommend? Yeah, so, you know, that, that's a question I do get a lot. And I think the more natural, the better, right? There's so many opportunities to ha- have this conversation come up. Let's say your kid likes a new artist and a lot of their music's about weed. You know, you might, you might bring that up and, and just talk about it and not a, judgmental way but you might point it out and ask your kid well, what do you think you know I love the BC boys when I was in middle school but I didn't endorse everything that they talked about I just 
was into the music, if an adult asked me, I might have, you know, qualified it and, and really had a chance to think about like, oh, yeah, I love this music, but this, this and this is not me. And, you know, I don't support, you know, what they're saying all the time. Um, I think that conversation can be had if a kid loves a, a movie or a show or even these you know, YouTube clips or whatever, like, and they think it's hilarious. You know, it's an opportunity for parents to just kind of like ask a question. Um, do you agree with this? You just find it funny. I dig a little deeper. We have so many celebrities who get themselves in trouble with alcohol and drugs and, you know, right. the media make, you know, makes a big story about it. There's another opportunity just to have a conversation. So I look for those as opportunities to, to bring it up. I don't crowbar it down people's throat. I, most people assume I would, you know, like you can sense it. Like when, when uh, <laughs> the topic comes up, Oh, Matt's going to be, you know, lecturing us. I don't, I don't advocate that. Um, I just think the conversation should be thoughtful and compassionate um, because it's tough, especially for young people um, to navigate this world and, and be healthy. You know, there's a lot of pressure for them not to be healthy. And I think if we think about it that way, um, you know, the conversations will, will be better. Right. Good answer. Good answer. Right, and talk about what do you think, is the best way to help them find their better high. Um, that's such an individual thing for, so, for, for people, but are there tricks of the trade or something to kind of help people find what's true for them and what, what will help them find their better high? You know, I, I definitely feel like being supportive of someone um, is helpful. So if, if you have a person who's excited about an activity and you're Mr. Negative, you know, explaining why you can't do this, you're going to get hurt. That obviously doesn't help. Um, You know, being someone who's, who's generally, and if you're a parent, you know, trying to uh, reinforce it, like, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll go, I'll buy you that bike. I'll, you know, I'll definitely support that, that choice to go learn how to ski, that kind of thing. Um, But for someone who sort of doesn't know, what activity they want to do. And that happens a lot. I'll suggest becoming a scientist for yourself and, and really trying something more than once, giving it like two or three times and seeing, does this do it for me? Do I notice my, my mood being better? And I'll use the example of um, during quarantine, um, my kids were just in a bad mood and I, I took a five minute break. First of all, I like, I told my wife, I have to walk around the block and I just have to get away for a minute. And I come back and my daughter's in tears. And I said, what happened? And I went, well, it goes to, like, she's seven years old, my, my daughter. And, and he goes, as soon as you left, she, she screamed like, daddy left. He's never coming back. I hardly even knew him. I'm like, what? Oh, my god! <laughs> How did your brain go there? So I said, right, let's, let's try an experiment now. Let's all get on a bike. And um, we'll just bike for like a half an hour. We'll see what happens. And sure enough at the end of the bike, I asked them, like, how do you feel now compared to how you felt in the beginning? They said, well, in the beginning, on a zero to ten, we were like a two. But now we're like a nine. I'm like, okay. So you learn that biking is a natural high for you. You know you can use this at any time. Get on your bike, go out for a few minutes, you'll feel better. That's what I'm talking about, that kind of experiment. Um, if you jump into a cold body of water, Scott, you will feel different afterwards you may not love it right but it's going to change how you feel 
because that's the natural high. It will, it will make you wake up and your mood will shoot up in the air. And you may not want to do that every day, but some people might. Some people might take a – I know people who take a cold shower every day because they love how it feels. I'm like, You're, that's crazy to me. I would never do that. But for that individual, they love, you know, how that feels. You know, perhaps the week you decide not to have coffee, right? You might try the cold shower, Scott, to see if that works. There you go. Okay. You. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I will try new things. Very, very good. Well, let's go into this now. Like you said, you kind of touched on it a bit. We're, we're um, going through a new world of, of all things, teaching, lecturing, and everything. How do you see your um, business kind of changing your model for yourself? Are you enjoying the Zoom things? Do you see yourself making more seminar things for, for prepackaging? Or what do you see yourself going over the next few months? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my, my mom asks that every time she calls me, like, what, what's your plan? <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think my skill set, uh, based on what my clients have told me will be even more in demand when, when school starts and not in school, but businesses too, um, because substance abuse, unfortunately is way up alcohol use, opioids and mental health issues um, are just so in need of a conversation uh, because you've got, in some cases, kids have been quarantined with a parent with a mental illness. Uh, they're being abused. Right. Um, they've struggled. Even, even the best case scenario of kids dealing with uh, real concerns about health and the health of their family, um, just being stuck, not being able to see their friends. Right. So I don't know exactly what things look like, um, Going forward, I'm open to, to doing Zoom, and, and I'm, I'm trying my best to make it engaging and enjoyable. It's, uh, it's tough to envision that going on for years and years and years. is the only thing I do, but I'd like to incorporate it, as I said earlier, um, in, into my work going forward because I, I think there's some real value to keeping in touch with clients and traveling less. You know, wouldn't right. that be a great thing to not be 200 dates a year out of my house but a hundred dates and then the rest are following up with those schools to, to see if I can implement things uh, when I'm gone or a company that's looking to form some sort of mental health support group. And maybe I could help lead it over zoom. Like these are things, the silver linings of, um, of the pandemic, but I, I definitely don't think I'm going to be working at, at home Depot. I think there's going to be a need for me <laughs> right in the midst of this. At least I hope so, Scott, because I, you know, it's hard to know. And there's a lot of uncertainty, but I keep reminding myself, like, stay, stay in there. Sort of don't give up. You know, people assumed some of my, my uh, family members assume, well, you're just going to you know, hang a shingle and, and start uh, seeing patients. And I'm not opposed to doing some coaching and such, but my skill set is about being in front of people and, and trying to engage them, um, you know, using stories and comedy. And I, I don't, I don't ever want to stop that. You know, it's part of my DNA. So it's right. always going to be what I want to do. It's like you talk to a comedian, you ask them, like, are you going to quit comedy? And they look at you like, what are you talking about? We need to quit comedy. <laughs> like, exactly. This is what I have to do. I'm compelled to do this. <laughs> if you don't quit it, it's like oxygen. No, and, and I think you're 100% right. We're going to need you more than ever when this is done because there's a lot of trauma going on in service workers and healthcare workers. Um, we, we haven't really – 
come to the realization of everything that's happened. We're going to have trauma in our first responders. We're going to have kind of in your service workers, like restaurant and bar, people that haven't worked for three months have had no income that don't understand or know how to cope with that. People are going to start to need to learn new coping skills. I think that's where you can come in positive things such as a better high is going to give them ways to kind of cope with this kind of new normal as they pull their lives back together again. So thank you for sharing all this stuff today. It's been great being able to kind of get your insights on all this, Matt. Oh, no, my pleasure. And I didn't even touch on, you know, meditation. I'm a big transcendental meditator. And uh, it's another thing I researched and present the science on. And um, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking that, man, that that's going to be so important. Um, for some of these folks that you're mentioning um, you know, to learn how to, to meditate and get back to their lives again um, after what they've seen. Um, right. And uh, I, I appreciate you having me on and your, your thoughtful questions have been enjoyable to answer. And uh, I hope I can come on again. I'm writing a second book that is um, about resilience, although I keep wanting to quit it, <laughs> every, which doesn't say much about me, I suppose. But <laughs> it, I would love to I come love on it. and tell you about that uh, next time. I would love to have you back anytime. Thanks for being such a great ally to our LGBTQ community. And in fact, I'm going to introduce you via email to I, ha- I produce a show on my network on Saturdays called Voices for Change 2.0 that's all about mental health, and I think you would be a perfect guest for them. So we will uh, we will get you in touch with them as well because they have a, a huge worldwide audience that would can use uh, the benefits of your book. So thank coming Thanks, on, Scott. Matt. Let everyone know where they can find your website, where they can find your book, and where they can follow you if you're on any of the social media at all. Sure. It's just Matt Bellis, um, but Amazon, Barnes & Noble, carry my book. Um, but certainly mapellis.com or the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram under mapellis. Feel free to uh, reach out to me. Any questions, be happy to help. Fantastic. I appreciate you, my friend. Stay in the line for me, guys. We're going to play out to a little Cameron Hawthorne here. I'll be back to wrap things up in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network.
Again, that was Cameron Hawthorne with Oh Hot Damn. If you're a country line dancer, check out Cameron's video for that song. It's a lot of fun. Guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. We had a great show. Again, if you missed Ramisa's Thursday Food Minute, be sure to download the episode so you can get those recipes for both stuffed peppers and shrimp and fettuccine Alfredo. Both sound absolutely amazing. And then a big shout-out to our guests today. Thanks for their time for Greg Baird. Uh, he's getting ready to be speaking again, and he has some online courses, so you can look him up at gregbaird.com. And Matt Bellis was a fantastic talk there. Same thing, he looked him up online. And when things get back to normal, get him out there. It's great when you can replace our addictions for something more positive because we all are addicted to something, rather. Me, as we said, caffeine, everyone's addicted to something. And when you can find your own personal high that makes it even better, that's great. So get his book. Justine, thanks so much for running the boards today. We have a great show coming up tomorrow as we finish up the week. Like I said, some of you will have a three-day weekend. Enjoy that three-day weekend and download the show later. But if you're listening live tomorrow night, We'll be back here at 6 o'clock Pacific time, 9 o'clock Eastern. And we have two amazing interviews for you. Plus, it's our Friday Fitness Minute. This week, we have our buddy Jason Caceres from Los Angeles calling in for our Friday Fitness Minute tip. And then two sets of interviews with three guests. Up first is a live interview with husband and husband duo Clay and Chris Rice Thompson, they are both Broadway actors, singer, and dancers. Uh, Clay was on King Kong and Newsies and Matilda. Uh, Chris was on Hamilton, who's premiering tomorrow night on Disney Plus, and in a lot of other great shows himself. So we're going to have a great chat with them. Uh, Chris actually proposed to Clay in one of those viral videos you see of the uh, flash mobs. It was fantastic. And then the second thing is going to be Daryl Thorne from New York. He has a great exhibition out there now. He makes these amazing masks and headpieces worn by people you might have heard of, like Madonna and a bunch of different places like that, people in places like that. So we're going to talk to them tomorrow. And then we'll just hope you have a great weekend here. We are going to be home, not on the road trip. So look for us uh, live shows all next week. We have a lot of pre-taped interviews, but I will be live each night instead of on the road. The plan was to have everything pre-taped next week, but I will be in town now. So 
That's it for the Left of Straight show, guys. Follow myself on Instagram and Twitter at Left of Straight. It's always spelled L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. Follow Justine and the other interns at Left of Straight Radio on Twitter and Instagram. On Facebook, the interns are running the Left of Straight Radio Facebook page. I have the Left of Straight show page and my personal page, Scott Fullerton. You can follow along on that. And you can always check out the website at www.leftofstraight.com. For Justine and I, we'll see you next time. Have a great evening, everyone. Bye-bye.